Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest in Hong Kong today is uh, William Balvin. Uh, he's a general partner at uh, SOSV, uh, manager director of China Accelerator at uh, Mox Accelerator. Um, you know, I, I realized that it was almost 10 years ago that, that we, we met when I was, was living in Hong Kong. Uh, and you were a, a stock analyst, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I uh, spent 11 years as a tech analyst uh, covering stocks. Uh, in that last three or four years with Deutsche Bank, I was covering uh, China Internet. Yeah. Uh, in 04, 05, the total value of uh, Chinese internet stocks was maybe three, four billion dollars. Right. Uh, and people thought they were overpriced then too. Yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> uh, and people thought Tencent was uh, just another flash in the pan. And uh, it, was only, it was only a billion dollar valuation at that time. And what's the total valuation now, 10 years later? Uh, it's over a trillion US. Wow. Uh, so you've got Alibaba at 300 billion. Uh, you've got Tencent at about 300 billion valuation. Baidu's, you know, the, the laggard at 80 billion. And the valuation of even these giants is still very much just premised on their internal China business. Uh, yeah. There's not a lot of growth options built into their global expansion yet. Well, I think uh, it's just starting. Yeah. Uh, so China is so competitive uh, that they're in a multi-front war in China. Yeah. And the thing about multi-front wars is they spread to new fronts. Uh, so now you've got uh, Tencent and Alibaba uh, fighting it out uh, across Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe, and South America. Um, they haven't really gone in successfully to Western Europe or US yet, um, but the emerging markets, the mobile first, mobile only markets are a battlefield uh, for Chinese players. As, it, as any veteran Go player would know, this is a classic sort of encircling move rather than a <laughs> than yeah. a direct sort of you know frontal attack like chess. But well, we'll come back to the, the, the bat trilogy later. And um, I think just before we get started, it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the you know the core premise behind uh, you know what SOSV does and the cross border nature. Um, you like me are also a half breed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you, it's your it's your mother that's Chinese or? Yeah, my mother is Chinese, but yeah. she's the uh, OG ABC. So she moved to the U.S. when she was four in 1946. Right. Uh, it was originally supposed to be a business trip, uh, and she grew up in New Jersey. Uh, you know, speaking English, going to summer camp. Uh, she was the one of the, her and her sister were the first Asian American cheerleaders at Tufts University really? uh, in the late 60s. Yeah. So um, uh, for uh, for she would have been considered very exotic then, no doubt. Uh, it was a little crazy. They, there's a, a, a picture I have that was taken by a Sports Illustrated photographer, and unfortunately, they didn't put her in the issue because I think it was too exotic back then. <laughs> My dad was Irish, so I mean, there must be something about these Celts. I think they yeah. uh, they're, they're one of the. Uh, uh, very wide-ranging tastes, I yeah. guess. <laughs> but 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 this is this is I think quite intriguing because you know a big part of what your fund does is built on the premise of a cross-border world, you know, of, of hybrids and of, of you know of of going into new markets with, with with I guess ideas that have worked elsewhere. 
Yeah, so uh, we focus on unfair advantage. Uh, it's difficult uh, to survive in a competitive market like China unless you have that unfair advantage. Now, most international companies, uh, when they come into China, they don't have an unfair advantage, therefore they fail. Right. Uh, and it's the same issue with Chinese companies. When they go global, oftentimes they don't have an unfair advantage, so they have difficulty. So we identify startups from around the world that have an unfair advantage, and then through China Accelerator, uh, we help them come into China. Uh, through our MOX Accelerator, we help them enter Southeast Asia, India, Eastern Europe, and South America. Uh, and we're just starting to help Chinese companies uh, go global. Uh, so you don't have an example of a successful international internet company in China, and you have very few successful examples of Chinese companies that have done well outside of China. That's starting to change. Well, what, what, what has traditionally been the reason for that? Is it like this sort of cultural airlock, you know, that you know, ideas just sort of don't, are able to permeate unchanged? Sure, I th you have uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, I think, that wrote a book about 10,000 hours. Uh, Mozart uh, spent a huge amount of time writing crappy music before he started composing uh, brilliant pieces. So you build up experience, you build up pattern recognition, and when you come from one market, your gut instinct is based on the patterns that you see in that market. Right. And when you try and go cross-border into another market, your gut sends you in the wrong direction. Uh, so what we do is we focus the companies on data, uh, communicating with their customers, but instead of just talking to them, uh, we actually communicate them through the product. And the, the, the customers talk to us um, through their usage. So we measure every point of their usage, uh, what they like, what they don't like, and we take a uh, lean, uh, test-driven, iterative approach. Uh, so we run three to five tests per week, or sometimes more, right. for each company through our 12-week process. Uh, and we've come out with some pretty amazing gains and some really non-intuitive solutions uh, to help our international companies in China and also our Chinese companies outside of China. I mean, this idea of uh, you know leveraging data, you know, to drive strategy in businesses is, is, is really fascinating. It's turning up in lots of places. I had a conversation with a um, you know with a with a senior leader from Coca-Cola from Africa, and he was saying one of his biggest fears is that you know you're getting these next generation entrepreneurs who are able to collect data on what customers want and where they want it. They go on a holiday in China, they see a bottle and that has unused capacity and then suddenly there's a new beverage brand. So, so it's not just in the digital space where the ability to leverage data it yeah. becomes very powerful. Yeah, I think things are changing rapidly. I mean, Coke, uh, some people in Coke still think that they're an actual beverage company instead of a lifestyle brand. Right. Um, but if you look at the data, uh, their strongest asset is that brand and that trust. Um, so we, uh, want, trust is one of the things that we help leverage, uh, help our companies leverage when they go cross-border. Uh, so going into China, we focus on areas uh, like education, uh, like cross-border commerce, where the products are unique and international. Um, we also look at fintech uh, and health. And these are areas where Chinese consumers and Chinese businesses um, believe that international companies do have an edge over Chinese companies. Right. Uh, there's been tons of health scandals. You know, Baidu's had issues there, advertising um, health uh, solutions that uh, probably are not completely kosher. Uh, and education, you know, many Chinese people still believe that the Chinese education system is not very strong and that international systems are better. Right. Uh, so we can take advantage of that uh, to provide, uh, to, to, to build businesses. The, the, the Chinese digital landscape is very different in the way it's evolved to, in, in the West. And, and I mean, 
we were talking earlier about the kind of unholy trinity of Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. But, but in many ways, the story these days, or at least now, is very much a WeChat world. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, just how pervasive is WeChat in the daily life in China? Um, so you've got close to a billion people using it. Uh, they're using it. Uh, what percentage like, of the population is that? Well, that's that's global. Uh, ah, okay. So yeah, but uh, I, I'd say um, you know over half the population uses it. Uh, they spend you know over an hour and a half. Uh, on it uh, every day. Most people. I heard actually, like it seemed like a third of the users actually spend up to four hours a day. Yeah, uh, <laughs> and I, I I'm behind, so I'm up to uh, you know four to six days behind on my WeChat. Uh, I stopped reading email about 18 months ago. Somebody else reads it for me, uh, right. and it's all on WeChat. I, we run a, our businesses on WeChat. But someone uh, someone reads your email and then sends you a message on WeChat about it. Uh, yes, if it's important, <laughs> uh, and then I respond back on email. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I mean, we, not just me, but large enterprises run their businesses on WeChat. Um, payment has really changed the game. Uh, so people have stopped carrying cash in China. Right. Uh, and actually some restaurants have stopped taking cards. Uh, and they look at you funny when you want to pay with cash or a card. Uh, one of my friends, she was recently you know, buying an ice cream. Uh, and the vendor didn't take WeChat pay because it was like this 60 year old dude on the street. Uh, the problem is that the four girls behind them, between them, didn't have $2 to pay for the ice cream. So uh, my friend paid the cash to the vendor and they sent her the $2 on WeChat. Um, people have stopped carrying wallets. Even street beggars take WeChat, right? Yeah, well, I don't know about that. Or is it just yeah. pocketful? <laughs> yeah. But so, so I mean, it, it, it's been described as kind of an operating system for daily life in China. Yeah. And, and, I, and I guess when it first started, uh, you know, using the messaging interface, you could order everything from food to buying, you know, insurance products and you yep. know, trench coats. Um, is, there, is there literally hundreds of people on the other side of this answering all these messages or are they, is it now bots and AI and machine learning into enterprise systems? Well, uh, I think that in the beginning, especially when you're young and small, especially for our startups, yeah. uh, you, you, you sort of cheat. You do things that don't scale to prove uh, a value proposition. Uh, so um, yeah, you, you do set up manual groups with people and you answer their questions manually and you sell them things manually. Right. But when you figure out, okay, these people actually want to buy something, uh, then you bring tech to bear. Uh, so one of our companies, Ochung, uh, we power uh, WeChat Commerce for companies like Richmond Group and LVMH Brands. Uh, and they're sending uh, to their brands, WeChat followers, three million individual personalized WeChat messages a day. Uh, and they've helped those brands you know, grow their WeChat following by 3x, grow their WeChat commerce, social commerce sales by 5x. How do you deal with that kind of volume? I mean, uh, like, with AI. Uh, right. So they use uh, machine learning and some artificial intelligence uh, to, to parse um, the data on the users and then use that data to drive individual personalized messages uh, through the, uh, the service accounts which are allowed to send one message per week to each user. So they have 30, 40 million different WeChat users. They're sending out uh, individual personalized messages to about th three million a day. So, so and it's a highly effective. So it, 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 this is really interesting from a branding perspective because they would have had to have defined a kind of the, the digital DNA of the brand. You know, that, that powers the, 
you know, that powers the neural network behind all those responses. Yeah. How, how, how does that sort of work? I mean, you're almost having to personify the brand as a, as a, as a digital identity. Well, it's pretty scary for most brand managers because yeah. they're saying, you know, in the past they created what their vision of what the brand should be. Uh, and now you have a personal... Which at best was a couple of photographs <laughs> and you know, a few adjectives, right? Yeah, <laughs> and, and now you have uh, consumers with a personal relationship with the brand. And that personal relationship might be different consumer by consumer by consumer, yeah. depending on their socioeconomic background or what city they're in. Or, and, and you can actually tailor uh, the brand to the customer. Uh, so it's truly personalized. Right. Um, we have another company that does uh, chatbots. Uh, and um, chatbots kind of suck. Uh, they're not that smart. But what this company does, Rikai Labs, is they pair a chatbot with a human. So the human starts off with a conversation. Uh, and they started with language learning. So you can do a language learning lesson with a US certified English teacher, one-on-one, -on -one, um, but there has a, there's a chatbot teaching assistant. And the teaching assistant pops in. So the teaching assistant starts by learning from the teacher. Uh, so the student, you'd be surprised, they ask a lot of the same questions over and over again, and the teacher will answer them and answer them. And then the chatbot will learn, oh, this is the right response to this question. Uh, so after a while, the chatbot will, will chime in uh, and answer the question for the teacher. Uh, so we started off with a teacher doing one-on-one -on -one lessons with one student. And then we had one teacher doing a one-on-one -on -one lesson with two students at the same time. Uh, and then we went to uh, the teacher doing one-on-one -on -one lessons with five different students at the same time. And now we're up to one teacher doing one-on-one -on -one lessons with 230 students at the same time. Uh, and the funny thing is the teacher slash the chatbot has been asked out on seven dates. Uh, so it's, 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 uh, it's a mix of human uh, plus chatbot. But the great thing is that using technology, uh, on WeChat, and we can actually roll this out on, on Facebook and other messaging platforms, we can offer one-on-one -on -one language instruction for 15 renminbi uh, per session, which is just a little bit over $2. Uh, and right now, most people for one-on-one -on -one sessions, you know, they're paying three, $4,000 a year for these, uh, these programs from uh, these famous uh, companies with very high valuations. Uh, and I'm not saying that we will undercut them, um, but we can open up one-on-one -on -one instruction to the masses. I've seen a, a similar plugin for Slack, I think it was called Niles, that, that learns you know, the idiotic questions that the same people ask you all the time and response. Yeah. Um, but, but I'm fascinated because in, in some ways, you know, WeChat, as you mentioned before, has already become you know, integrated into the enterprise yep. uh, informally in China. Yeah. How has this changed the dynamics of, of, of the way people run companies and make decisions and communicate? Yeah. So one of the things that we do for China Accelerator and Mox is we help our companies acquire users without spending money. Hmm. Uh, with Mox, we have our own mobile platform with 130 million users. In China, we hack and growth hack 16 social networks. Uh, but for... Um, um, Sorry, what was the first part of the question? Well, I was, yeah. just, I, was, I was really just interested about how you know the use of WeChat has, changed, has it embedded itself in the uh, you know in, in the enterprise. Oh, oh yeah. So um, one of the one of the things that we do, uh, one of the other ways that we uh, sorry double back to back red eyes. One of the other ways we help our companies acquire users is by uh, partnering with corporates. Right. Uh, so we don't really make money on it, but we match cool startups with those corporates. And we use it as a way for our startups to uh, acquire uh, users. 
Um, and so one of the, the one of the programs we've been running is with Visa. Uh, we've been running innovation programs now with them for the last three years, and two years ago they launched uh, Visa Everywhere. Uh, and one of the issues, uh, challenges, or goals that Visa has is they're competing uh, for which uh, payment system you use at the point of sale. Yeah. So when Chinese travel outside of China, they spend a good amount of money. You know, they're 40% of luxury spend in the world, and I think 60 plus percent of that is outside of China. Uh, so the issue is for Visa, you know, they want people to spend more money uh, on the Visa platform, not on their competitors. Uh, so we used WeChat plus the, the chat bot that I mentioned earlier to do a travel concierge and a travel guide service. Uh, so any Chinese anywhere in the world can say, where should I eat? Where should I shop? And uh, the Visa uh, representative, which is actually mostly a bot, will say, oh, this restaurant is great, and if you use Visa, you get a discount. Or this store is wonderful, and if you huh. use Visa, you get price protection. Or this other store is great, uh, if you get Visa, you know, you can uh, get points. Which in a way was always the promise of these, um, you know, platinum card concierge services, but you just never ever used them. <laughs> yeah, well, this is pretty seamless, and it's, and it's working quite well. Yeah. One of the other things um, that we've, uh, one of the other customers uh, is CAA, uh, Creative, it's a, one of the largest uh, Agency. talent agencies yeah. in the world. Uh, so we've created FanBot. Uh, so you have a celebrity with a chatbot assistant that will speak for the celebrity when the celebrity is not around, which is basically all the time. But, but this, this is similar to the issue of kind of the, um, you know, the brand engine behind the Richemont groups, you know, um, how, how, how do you, in a sense, coach that bot to resemble the brand, whether it's celebrity or a watch? Yeah. I, I mean, is it kind of a, you know, a learned observation, like, like the language lesson? It's exactly that. So they'll learn from the celebrity or from the celebrity's representative who uh, has, speaks with the voice of that celebrity. Right. And then they'll, they'll, it's actually a direct copy. Um, so it, it learns over time. Uh, sometimes it does make mistakes. For example, uh, you do not want a mainland celebrity uh, to uh, have someone represent the celebrity who's from Hong Kong because they speak a different type of Chinese. Um, <laughs> you do not want you know, a gangster rapper uh, being translated by a 22-year-old female college student uh, because you'll have a gangster rapper that you know, sounds a little bit like uh, a squeaky teen. Um, so you have to have that voice correct, uh, but the tech will just mimic and copy and, and replicate what the uh, celebrity or the celebrity's representative says. Uh, it's not like chatbots and AI, not perfect yet, uh, but it's moving very, very, very quickly. I mean, what's interesting about how this is evolving is that, you know, the point of origin for um, a WeChat versus a Facebook are very different in the sense that Facebook decided to, um, uh, I've heard you say this before, you know, really base their model around attention and selling advertising. Yeah. Whereas sort of the fundamental premise of WeChat was always social commerce. Right. Um, and, and I guess as you now add, you know, chatbots and things like that, that, that that's going to develop much more quickly sure, than, sure. It, than it will on the Facebook side. I mean, there's two ways people make money on the internet, if you want to simplify things. One is entertainment, which is often games, and the other one is commerce. And advertisement feeds to entertainment and commerce. Yeah. So if you're Facebook, you can make money on, on, on advertisement, but you're taking a smaller, you know, you're taking a cut. You're basically taking a piece of the marketing expense. And you can only do it by creating a total walled garden. 
yeah. know, in, in which you're selling attention. Well, it helps because if you have people who are, you know, like on, on WeChat, people get users with great content. Um, on, on Facebook, uh, people get users by paying Facebook. Uh, and uh, so there's, there's, it's, it's a huge dichotomy and Facebook is trying to catch up. Uh, but Tencent and WeChat and a lot of the other social networks have been able to differentiate uh, because they've attracted people who create awesome, engaging, wonderful content. And the users like it, so they engage with the platform. On Facebook, um, they have your friends and their updates and they keep on tweaking the algorithm uh, to share more friend stuff and less news stuff. Yeah. Uh, but um, in the end, their business model is based on spamming you with ads. Yeah, uh, and the and social, the social yeah. commerce piece hasn't really taken off. I mean, people don't really buy things from each other. In the, but in China, that's sort of the cornerstone of which why people discover and, and buy from brands, is that right? Yeah. So the, one of the problems with uh, the US and Western Europe is people believe that sharing a product with your friend and having them buying it and you getting a piece of that purchase is evil yeah. or is or, uncouth uh, or, or bad or, manners. Or multi-level marketing. Yeah, or multi-level <laughs> marketing, which is a bad thing. But in most of the rest of the world, that's not the case. There's nothing wrong with multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing is a good way to engage with your friends and make a little money on the side. Uh, and so if you go into Facebook, you click on whatever you click on, and you can't buy any of it. But if you go into WeChat or other platforms, uh, especially in Asia, you can click anything you click on, you can probably buy. Uh, and this is a way where content creators for the first time can actually get paid uh, somewhat what they're worth as opposed to just picking up the crumbs off of YouTube's revenue share or on Facebook and Instagram getting paid nothing. Yeah, or getting uh, paid to post in, in, yeah. in, in a very non-transparent way. Yeah, uh, but the platforms don't share. That, that might be an agency. And, and Facebook has made incentive posts uh, illegal on their platform. Huh. So if you're a celebrity and you get paid to post, uh, they can actually kill your account. Uh, how, how much do the how much do people make um, on social commerce recommendations? I mean, do some of these people make significant money? Um, so it can be as high as five hundred thousand to a million US for a paid post. Uh, it can be quite significant. Usually for those large, um, uh, they do it over a series of posts, uh, and it's think about it more like a campaign. Um, but uh, it's not just celebrities. Uh, there's, so there's celebrities that are, people who are famous because they do something, like they sing or they're in movies. Then there's internet celebrities, Wang Hong, who are just famous on uh, the internet. And in YouTube, you have YouTubers, and it's very similar. Yeah. And then right now you have everyday people. And we actually have a company called Everyday People, uh, which allows anybody to post something, whether it be an app or a brand message or a product. And if somebody engages uh, with that brand message, if they download the app or they buy the product, the normal person on their normal Facebook or, or Instagram account uh, can uh, get some com compensation. Right. Uh, and it's allowing, it's really opening things up. Uh, and so uh, it, it, you're democratizing uh, the ability to make money um, based on the trust that you have with your friends and your followers. Uh, and everybody can do it. It's not just you know Brad Pitt who gets paid a lot of money for flogging a product. Uh, anybody who believes or loves you know their Xiaomi uh, new phone. 
can share it. And if somebody says, oh, wow, I trust my friend Fred here. He knows a lot about phones. He likes this new phone. They click and buy it, and Fred can get a little uh, payment. So, so, you know, Alibaba and Alipay are not going to take this sitting down. And so obviously they're creating a rearguard action to, you know, through fintech, you know, to try and claw some of this back. Um, yeah. what, what essentially has been their play and, 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 and how is it evolving? Well, um, Alibaba is sort of on the back foot around social because they're the number one in commerce, yeah. but they haven't been able to do social. So they haven't been able to really do social commerce. So they've been investing in a lot of other internet properties. Um, you know, I, I believe they're, they're with Weibo, uh, Yoku, Tudo, uh, and they're leveraging these uh, and the KOLs, the opinion leaders, the bloggers, the influencers that are on these other social platforms to connect um, you know, great content and those influencers with their Taobao platform. Right. Uh, they haven't uh, been able to successfully launch a, a messaging based app. Uh, they've tried three times so far and failed. Uh, one of them uh, was a little embarrassing because people are like, oh, this is great. And they started uh, posting uh, scantily clad pictures of themselves. Uh, on the platform, and that got shut down very quickly. Right. They created their own Tumblr, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, um, but they, it, you know, th these are, are very large companies. They're not taking anything sitting down. No, uh, you know, I, I noticed recently that they were even offering free health insurance um, based on how much you spent, uh, yeah. like linked linked uh, through Alipay. Yeah. So, so what we, how is blockchain? I mean, Bitcoin is, you know. Uh, because of all the, the I guess the, the farmers over in China, it's sort of been a sort of a, an unusual secret part of the Chinese internet. Yeah. Are you seeing some unusual uses of blockchain um, in fintech in China as a result? So I'd say that people focus a lot on when you talk about cryptocurrency and blockchain, mm -hmm. they focus too much on the currency and the price of the currency uh, rather than the protocol. Uh, rather than the protocol, rather than the tech, and rather than the problems that you can use that tech to solve. Um, so we focus on problems um, and and one of our most successful companies is called BitMEX. It's actually based in Hong Kong. Uh, last year they won number one startup in Hong Kong for Tech in Asia, which is a, a, an Asian tech blog and conference. And then they won number one startup in Asia at the, oh. uh, at the regionals out of uh, 600 odd companies in, in seven countries. Uh, but what they do is is they, they leverage uh, blockchain and, and cryptocurrency to solve a completely, pretty much unrelated problem. So they run a derivatives exchange. Uh, so uh, it's, it's a standard derivatives exchange. So you have a, a financial product like Apple stock and Apple stock goes up and down uh, and they have a derivative on their exchange uh, that mirrors the up and down of Apple stock. Um, the key thing here is that they, you, you fund your account uh, with Bitcoin instead of dollars or renminbi or yen. Uh, and because of that, uh, they do not have to pay as much attention to any of the regulations that come along with those currencies. Oh. Uh, so we solve a very big problem uh, in that we can provide uh, financial services to the uh, unbanked or the unbrokerage account. I don't know, there's like six billion plus people in the world that don't have an investment account. There's a lot of people who don't also don't have a bank account, but also it creates almost like a like a BVI for currencies. You know, it's, uh, it, it well, it's a BVI for investment products. Yes, we yeah. don't touch the currencies, um, and actually, you, we're just using the Bitcoin to fund the account. After that, uh, it, it's you're a not sitting on yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not sitting on Bitcoin. 
Uh, so we launched uh, with currency trading. Uh, it was Bitcoin dollar and Ethereum dollar and Zcash dollar. Uh, then uh, ETFs. Uh, so the China A share 50 out of Singapore, you can go long short uh, China. Uh, and uh, soon uh, we'll be offering a huge uh, new selection of, of equity related products. Uh, opening up uh, the investment world uh, to anyone. So with a phone, some money in a digital wallet, you know, an Indonesian or a Brazilian farmer can put 20 bucks in a S&P 500 index fund derivative or in a time deposit, which is much preferable than digging a hole in the ground and burying the money. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things we alluded to at the start of this, of our chat was, you know, the spread of and influence of these Chinese tech companies into some of these other emerging markets, whether yeah. it be Brazil or India or um, Southeast Asia. So, so do you think the way that the digital landscape is going to evolve in these markets will start to diverge from the kind of the US-centric European model? I, I look at it, uh, maybe it's a little tough, but I look at it in military terms. I mean, you've got a war going on. So if you look at App Annie data, mm. App, App Annie, uh, they track what's going on with a million apps around the world in terms of their usage, uh, who's making more money. Uh, and uh, if you look at App Annie data for Russia, for Brazil, for Indonesia, for India, it's a war. It's Google, Facebook, and three or four Chinese players, and maybe one local player. Or Russia, <laughs> two or three. Um, so the international players are, are gradually killing uh, the local players in these uh, emerging markets. I mean, right now, Google and Facebook control maybe 50% of the global mobile advertising market. And in some of our mobile first markets, they're up to 85%. Uh, so it's dom domination. Uh, and the issue when you have seven or eight guys uh, controlling everything uh, is uh, it makes it very difficult for VCs like me who invest small amounts of money in entrepreneurs uh, to, to survive. Uh, it's not the 99% 1%, it's the 99.9 and the 0.1%. Because it's really just a transfer of wealth from your fund to these global players for them to acquire customers. Yeah, so uh, it doesn't really matter how good your product is, yeah. uh, how much people love it on mobile. Uh, if you're coming out of like uh, you know a garage in Palo Alto or a garage in Mumbai, uh, no one will ever see your product unless you spend money on Google, Facebook, or one of the Chinese platforms. Uh, and so we're trying to change that. We're trying to open things back up a bit. Um, but it's it's you you can see it in VC. VCs aren't investing in mobile anymore. They're not investing in a lot of uh, startups that solve these problems for, for end users uh, because uh, it's not economic because you have to spend 20, 30, 40 cents for a user and that user might not actually return that money anytime in the near future. Well, William, it's been great to see you again. Yes. Uh, thank you for being on the show and uh, great to catch up. Yeah, thanks for having me. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.